Also, you didn't see a cow unless you said, oh, cows. <laughs> Welcome back to the planet today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, July 2nd, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer slash co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nick, how are you doing today? Maddie? I am doing well. What an intro for me. That's like too much stuff. I'm not that intricate. <laughs> I, uh, I felt that you do way more than just produce, so I want to give you the shine that you oh so deserve. <laughs> I appreciate it, bud. Uh, Nick, happy 4th of July weekend. For our listeners who are not from where Nick and I live, it's been an absolute scorcher in the Northeast this week. So uh, I'm excited to spend the 4th of July by a pool. And, you know, I do have some friends in the Pacific Northwest who are struggling even more, but we will talk about that later. Nick, what are you up to this weekend? Happy 4th, Maddie. I am super stoked for this weekend. Um, and I'm hoping that three straight days of 90 degree temperatures do not kill me before the weekend. Yeah, that would be kind of unfortunate to like finally look at the the upcoming forecast and see we're almost at those cool low 80 degree days. And then all of a sudden you just call it call it quits right before. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the 80 degree temps, that's what I'm expecting out of summer. And I haven't gotten any of it. I've gotten either, hey, it's too cold to even go to the beach or, OK, it's so hot you can't even go outside. So I'm ready for some moderate temps. Can we get the moderate temps? Thank you. Yeah, just give me give me a mild summer and I am very, very happy. Yeah, if you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we're happy to have you as a listener. Just like last week, before we get started, we wanted to read a few more reviews people have been leaving for us on Apple Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. Yes, so let's get into it. So the first one is from Downtown D Money, and he says, This podcast has awesome content and is very worth a listen. The 52 minutes breezed by, and it's definitely a great place for anyone looking to be more environmentally informed. Thank you, Downtown D Money. Also appreciate calling out the uh, 52 minutes, so we know that that review is after episode one. <laughs> uh, so high praise right off the bat, and I hope that episodes two through four bring that same thing you're looking for. Uh, our goal is to help people be more environmentally informed, so I really appreciate that response. Um, on a similar note, I Heart Draco says, I found all of the topics interesting, relevant, and very informative. Can't wait to listen to the next one. Thank you so much, I Heart Draco. That's very profound of you. Thank you so much. Um, and we'll be reading more reviews each week, so make sure to leave us a five-star rating and then a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can thank you right here on this show. Today on TPT, Nick and I will be reviewing National Geographic's Before the Flood. But first, we'll get started, as always, with a few quick hits. Yeah, so let's get right into it. So our first one is a TED Talk called 
What to Do When Climate Change Feels Unstoppable by Clover Hogan. She gave the speech at a TEDx London Women event in 2021. Yeah, so Clover Hogan is a climate activist, and in this talk, she talks about eco-anxiety, and she wants to encourage people to be optimistic about the future, despite how grim the news and projections can be sometimes. Hogan grew up in a tropical region in Australia, and she said that she experienced her first heartbreak while watching An Inconvenient Truth, which is Al Gore's documentary from 2006. She said she experienced her second heartbreak in November 2019 as wildfires destroyed parts of her home country. So she goes on to talk about all of the catastrophic climate events that she has seen and points out how our generation is both the least responsible for the damages, but the last generation that can actually do something about it before it's too late. She goes on to talk more about the mental health epidemic that is faced by young people and how eco-anxiety is causing more and more people to feel almost existential dread that things can't and won't get better. She highlights how young people fear that the future will have less food, less water, less forests, and she talks about how others, particularly some older folks, might find comfort in denial that, you know, it's not as bad as people are saying. And she says that the despair that young people feel and the denial that some older people might feel, they're similar, but they don't get us anywhere. And and the difference between the two to her is that despair says, it's not up to me to fix this because it's too big to fix. While denial will say, it's not up to me to fix this because someone else will fix it. And she says that we have a responsibility to act on climate change And with that responsibility comes the power to make it happen. While no one person can fix this issue on their own, we can mobilize as a group and create change. And every problem has a solution. So taking positive steps, no matter how small they are, really does help if everyone collectively takes those positive steps. Yeah, definitely a a really interesting point because I feel like I haven't heard this specific point made before. And I think in general, like you just said, any positivity around a situation will help it. Yeah, so we figured this would be a good topic to start the show with since climate change can be a very concerning topic. And as the documentary actually we'll be talking about later points out. Yeah, and and just to, you know, make it abundantly clear, I definitely fall into the despair category sometimes. Like I I started the show as kind of a way to highlight some of the positive things that are going on because it's really hard to see environmental news and see all of the things that are going on and not be like, how do we fix this? Like, can we fix this? And you know, we can. And this Ted talk was really good for me to listen to. And I hope that, you know, others will, will give it a shot. It was only, I think 13 minutes. So it's a short one, but it's, it's comforting. Definitely. All right, so let's get into this next one. So it's from the New York Times where Atish Butia, Henry Fountain, and Kevin Quigley wrote, how weird is the heat in Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver? Off the charts. So we alluded to this at the start of the show when we were talking about the heat wave that we're experiencing in New York. But the Pacific Northwest is reaching record-breaking temperatures as we speak. The article, which we're going to link in the show notes, has interactive maps that compare the current temperatures to historical norms. Over the past week, almost the entirety of Washington state, 
a huge chunk of British Columbia and the entire western coast of Oregon have experienced either their hottest or second hottest temperature since 1979. This phenomenon was caused by a heat dome, which is when a wide and deep mass of high pressure air settles over a region. The authors compare this dense air kind of acting like a lid on a pot so that the air just accumulates heat. We talked about this, I think it was last episode, but the Western United States is experiencing a drought, so there's no shortage of hot air for that dome to trap. Now, scientists who are studying this have said that extreme weather events are happening more as the climate changes, so unfortunately, this is going to continue to happen more. And something to keep an eye on for the next few weeks are projections that temperatures will remain high, albeit not as high as they are now, which can impact agriculture and wildfires in the region. Um, I think right now they said that in some places it's about 30 degrees hotter than it normally is. They said in the upcoming weeks it's going to be about 10 to 15 degrees hotter, so considerably hotter, not quite as much as they're facing now, but it's not something you can shrug off and say, oh yeah, it's just 10 degrees. I mean, that's, that's a lot. On a public health note, The Economist's climate issue from June 28th brought up how heat waves are often called the silent killers of climate change. They said that people don't necessarily die from it being too hot, but the heat can worsen respiratory issues or cardiac disease. On a personal note, I have a friend who lives in the Portland area. Shout out, Rachel, if you're listening. Uh, I'm revoking your shout out if you're not, so hope you heard (laughs) that. Uh, (laughs) She sent me a picture of the thermometer in her house, and it was well over 100 degrees in there. And I asked, how does that happen? And she told me that since the area is usually so mild, a lot of homes just don't have air conditioners because you don't usually need it in the summer. Like a ceiling fan will get the job done. So I can't imagine A, having it that hot outside or B, going inside and okay, it's not 110, but it's still 106 in your house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and did you see also that CBS News referred to this as a once in a millennium event? And they also said that Portland likely has not even reached its peak heat yet. Jeez. Yeah, we are. Um, I think I think uh, actually, Nick, you sent me this on Instagram. The Climate Reality Project said that we are in an environmental crisis right now. And it pointed out all of the different cities in the Pacific Northwest that are experiencing crazy levels of heat. So yeah, this is kind of this overarching story this week that everyone's going to be talking about. Yeah, definitely go check out their Instagram page. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and get into the next one here. Um, so on Saturday, Gizmodo.com's Molly Taft wrote an article titled, Ron DeSantis signs a bill that mandates cities keep using fossil fuels. Yeah, this is a bummer. Um, you know, I, I sent it to Nick and I said the joke, uh, Florida gonna Florida, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it still kind of shocks me when Florida man signs bill to uh, keep using fossil fuels. Um, so, yeah, this this should come as no surprise. But this bill, like other similar bills that are aimed at banning the banning of fossil fuels, are funded by oil and gas interests. So Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, basically wants to make sure that natural gas hookups cannot be banned in new construction. Florida joins Texas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Arizona, and Oklahoma in listening to natural gas lobbyists. However, Florida's bill goes a few steps further than the rest. The way the bill is written is kind of broad, which 
could create a path for Florida's government to end up restricting cities from banning fossil fuels altogether. Policy alert. This is going to be a little uh, annoying because of the way that it's written, but I wanted to include the exact language of the bill just in case anyone's curious. Uh, if you're not, just skip like 10 seconds. If uh, <laughs> It states that cities, quote, may not enact or enforce a resolution, ordinance, rule, code, policy, or take any action that restricts or prohibits or has the effect of restricting or prohibiting the types or fuel sources of energy production. So if you took the time to listen to that, sounds pretty confusing and broad. If you didn't take the time to listen to that, all you missed was something that's a little confusing and broad. (laughs) So because of how broad it's worded, um, it basically just says that you can't ban a specific type of energy, which is a huge step back as we move towards a cheaper, cleaner, renewable future. With this, Florida's kind of leaving the door open to say, you can't ban fossil fuels for this or maybe at all in the future. So they're kind of just leaving their options open, which, which here is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, and while I'm not really surprised by this article it is just kind of crazy that we're still having political battles over the same topics discussed in today's feature documentary that came out literally five years ago yeah it's like the the more things change the more they stay the same florida gonna florida okay so (laughs) the last one comes from trillion trees which partners with the Wildlife Conservation Society, World Wildlife Fund, and BirdLife International with a goal of having one trillion trees regrown, saved from loss, and better protected by 2050. We took a look at their June 2021 update for this episode. So the full report is only four pages and has some pretty cool pictures, so I'd recommend checking it out. We are also going to link the highlights in the show notes. Um, And from the highlights, you can access the full report with one click of a button. Um, So the highlight of this report for me was how the Trillion Trees Reforest Fund is giving a huge boost to restoration work in Makira Natural Park in northeastern Madagascar. So Madagascar is incredibly biodiverse. Over 80% of the plants and animals that live there are endemic to the island, which means that they only live in one location. 20% of Madagascar's biodiversity lives within Makira Natural Park, including 17 species of lemurs. And who doesn't love lemurs? The park makes up the largest remaining intact humid rainforest in Madagascar. So reforesting areas of the park that have been threatened by deforestation helps to increase the chance that the species that live there will be able to flourish moving forward. The WCS, or Wildlife Conservation Society, who Nick mentioned earlier, is a partner of Trillion Trees, And they have been working within the area since 2012 to reduce deforestation by working with 75 community groups and Madagascar's forestry administration. Trillion Trees is really hopeful for the long-term biodiversity of the park. And honestly, so are we. Yeah. And they also talk about fighting forest fires in Mesoamerica as they fought a surge of COVID-19. The WCS exceeding their goal of planting 520,000 seedlings in Tanzania and also a study they conducted about regrowing forests. So really interesting update. And if you don't have time to read the full report, just go ahead and check out the highlights for now. But for now, I think we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to talk about National Geographic's Before the Flood. Yes, I need water dearly because I just finished my water bottle. So uh, when we get back, Before the Flood. (laughs) 
Nick, I went for a run the other day, and despite running in the morning to beat the heat, I, in fact, did not beat the heat. I was sweating up a f***ing storm. <laughs> this heat is really nothing to mess around with, Maddie. You gotta keep the Alta Anya at all times. I got back, and before even drinking some water, I knew I had to get the sweat off of my brow immediately. So I reached for my handkerchief, and boom, all of a sudden, my forehead was as dry as can be, thanks to Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A.com and code TPT. Guys, please go get them. Valaalta.com. Softness, durability, absorbency, rapid drying. Welcome back to the planet today. As we mentioned last week and at the top of today's show, we watched National Geographic's 2016 documentary Before the Flood for this week's episode. A quick summary of this documentary would say that it's about actor and environmental activist Leonardo DiCaprio traveling the world to witness firsthand some of the issues that are created by climate change. And Leo's goal with this film is to highlight how dire the situation is and to show people what some of the phrases we often hear, such as melting glaciers, actually looks like at the ground zero of climate change. Uh, Nick, before we get too into it, have you seen this movie before? I actually had not, and I couldn't really believe it either because I love Leo as an actor, and I feel like I've seen almost all of his movies, but I did not see this one. This one kind of slipped past me. Yeah, it's it's cool because you know I, I don't think you're alone in saying that you love Leo. He's one of, if not the best actor of our generation. And to have someone like that, who's also a big environmental activist, it's just going to bring more eyes to something that needs as much support as it can get. Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't even know, like some of the clips, I think we're going to get into it, but some of the clips were just insane. He's like 20 years old. He's talking with like Bill Clinton. I was like, whoa. I had no idea he was an environmental activist for this long. That was cool. Yeah, yeah, he's he's been in the fight for a while. Um, I, I I had seen the documentary before we watched it. You know, this week um, I watched it when it came out in 2016 because my university had a screening of it for the College of Earth, Ocean, and Environment, which I graduated from. So yeah, this was my second time seeing it, and. I think it was almost more impactful for me now than it was when I was, I guess, 21, because, you know, when you're 21, things don't really matter. (laughs) You kind of just like, all right, yeah, that was a cool documentary, but like, whatever, I want to go to the bars. (laughs) (laughs) One track mind. Yeah. And and I guess now that I'm an old, mature 26 year old, I, I can focus on things other than, you know, finishing this documentary and then 
figuring out what the cheapest beer I can afford at this college bar is. <laughs> so the movie starts out with Leonardo DiCaprio talking about his own upbringing and a painting that inspired his own environmentalism at a young age. And I felt that this was a really cool way to start the uh, documentary because all of us have our thing that first inspired us. And I'm not even just talking about inspired us to become environmentalists because I recognize some people who listen to this podcast might not be environmentalists. They might just be interested in this. So everyone has their thing that first inspired them in some way, shape or form. And I thought it was cool to see someone like Leo and, and where his spark came from because I think of him and I just think we live totally different lives and, you know, I can't really relate, but now seeing that I was like, okay, cool. Like I, I totally get why he would look at that painting and say, I want to look more into that. Yeah. It did a lot to humanize him. Yeah. Nick, just out of curiosity, where would you say your spark came from with, uh, I, I know you, you said at the start of the, of the pod, you're not an expert, but I also know that you do care about the outdoors. Do, do you have something that gave you a spark for that? Or is it just kind of always been there in the background? I think it's always kind of just been there in the background. I always loved playing outside as a kid. And I think just like fostering that relationship with this sounds so cliche, but like the ground, like just playing outside, playing baseball or, you know, any sport, like you miss the smell of like fresh cut grass and just like clean air and the blue sky above you. I don't know. There's something about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. And, and, you know, part of me getting that might be because I was probably with you for half the time there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll, I'll talk, you know, my, my spark came from, uh, it was freshman year of high school and I took uh, AP environmental science with Mr. Rizzo. He is to this date, my favorite teacher I've ever had. Um, and his class kind of took me from kid who likes animals to kid who wants to pursue a career in environmentalism. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just knew that, you know, Riz kind of inspired me to make this my thing. Uh, Riz, if you're listening, thank you. And, uh, see you on the podcast soon. <laughs> um, all right. So getting back to the documentary after Leo talking about his spark, he meets with Ban Kai Moon, who is secretary general of the United Nations. Uh, Kai Moon compares the earth in the universe to a small boat in the ocean and Honestly, I thought that comparison was perfect because like he says, if the boat sinks, we all sink today. So Leo, while he was meeting with Ban Ki-moon at the United Nations, he gives a speech and, and the speech also just jumped out at me because he acknowledges that he's not an expert, but just someone who cares a lot. And by pointing out that the news we get hit with is often very bad and seems to be getting worse. I think that's important to bring up because the news does get hard to keep up with at times and it can be daunting or it can be scary. And in, in seeing that it kind of made me reflect and I hope our show kind of breaks things down in a way that makes these things seem more manageable because for all the issues we face and they are serious, there's exciting solutions that can work if we act in time. So him going through all that and, and talking about, you know, hope and, and caring, it, it really jumped out at me. Yeah. And it, it left room for some relatability with, with Leo. Like you were able to be like, okay, I also, as for me, at least, like, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but, um, 
him just coming at it as I just care a lot. So let me share with you kind of what I've learned from my experiences. That was a really good place for this documentary to kind of start off at. Yeah. And it's interesting because like we live such different lives. Like we have different payrolls, different jobs. Like we don't have a lot in common with Leonardo DiCaprio, but in this instance, we're all just concerned citizens and we're not experts, but you know, I, I think the cool thing here is that Leo listens to the scientists. There were clips of news reporters, and, and that was very frustrating because they also pointed out that Leo is not an expert. Um, those same people pointing out that he's not an expert often peddle climate skepticism on their shows and promote people who are also not experts. So that was just very hypocritical, but you know, important to put in the documentary because. It's, it's important to see, you know, what the, I guess, other side of this fight is saying. Yeah. And what was also funny is they had the same host of those shows. They had people on who were literally paid by like the biggest oil companies in the world, and like the fossil fuel companies to talk like just literally just BS basically about climate change. Yeah. And, and the thing is, they're just kind of peddling misinformation. So for reference here, and they talk about this in, in the film as well, but I want to really just break it down. 97% of climate scientists agree that climate change is happening and human caused. There's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot and it's anthropomorphic climate change. Uh, I'm sure if you hear that, you're going to say, well, what does that mean? So it just means human caused climate change. So you can think about how anthropology is the study of humans and therefore anthropomorphic just means human caused. So if 97% of pilots or flying experts told you that a plane was not safe to fly, you'd probably change your method of transportation and not take that plane. Yet when the same 97% of scientists are saying, hey, this is a serious issue and we are causing it. Some people just respond with, there is no way that can be correct. I know more than them because I read something on Facebook that says it was cold yesterday. <laughs> yeah, oh it's, it's frustrating. Um, but to get back to the film, uh, next up, Michael Brune, who is the executive director of the Sierra Club, talks about how our entire system is kind of working against mitigating climate change. Our economy is based on fossil fuels, whether it's transportation, electricity, etc. Um, I mean, even throw in consumer goods. We talked about fast fashion and, and, and the clothing industry last week and how it's based on fossil fuels. So Brune talks about the environmental harm related to all of this fossil fuel consumption and how, you know, it's not getting better because we are still relying on fossil fuels. They do this flyover of the oil sands and God, it was just shocking to see for people who aren't familiar with that process. We talked about the Keystone XL pipeline in our June 11th episode of this show, and that was the process we were talking about where they're just drilling and blasting away sands to strip oil from the tar sands. And look, if you watch the documentary, we don't have to tell you that that land doesn't look inhabitable. Like you're not going to go there and say, yeah, this is a good place to live because because you're destroying the environment and that you know in, impacts wildlife, water supplies. It's it's not like it's just that small area that's impacted, and then you multiply that by everywhere that they are doing this sort of process. 
it adds up and it adds up big time. Yeah, it was a super desolate, like scary looking place. And I think even Leo compares it to Mordor. It's just a wasteland. It looks like a post-apocalyptic, you know, area that's just been tarnished. But to compare those tar sands to Mordor, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it makes sense. It's just dark and desolate and, and not welcoming. And I thought, you know, his his comparison there, it's a really easy way for people to kind of relate and say, yep, I get that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the scene where they're in the Arctic Ocean and they say you can drive a boat through the Arctic by 2040 is just wild to think of. Like, that's literally 20 years from now where the North Pole will literally just be a cold ocean with a lot of ice in it. Yeah, and you think about the North Pole and how you're like, all right, that's where polar bears and narwhals and all of those sort of cold weather animals live. And, you know, polar bears need ice to stand on. That's where they live. And they dive into the ocean to go hunt for fish and seals and whatever else they're going to eat. But then they come back to that ice. And as that melts, I mean, everyone by this point has seen a video or a picture of a sad polar bear looking very skinny and standing on a really small block of ice. And unfortunately, that's just going to become more common and then eventually less common as polar bears start to die out more because they're all going to have their small little ice cubes that they're standing on. But then that ice is going to run out. And then those pictures are going to become more scarce because there's less polar bears to take pictures of. And that's very scary to think of. So yeah, like driving a boat through the Arctic is terrifying in and of itself when you think about it. But then you think of the ramifications it has on all of the animals that live there. And it's just, it's a serious problem we're looking at here. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and and switching gears, you brought this up earlier, but it was really cool to see how long Leo has actually been advocating for fighting climate change. Um, I thought his interview with President Bill Clinton was particularly impactful, and President Clinton was right. It is hard for some people to think about what is happening because it has been a relatively slow process. Like we, We talk about this and we're like, look how much the climate has changed over the past 40 years. And you get people to say, no, it was just hot last summer. It was colder the summer before. But yeah, there's peaks and valleys when you look at the temperature graph. But if you look at the entire scale from 1900 until 2021, it's moving up and it's moving up big time. It's just when you compare it to the years prior, it's closer than it was, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, and actually in the beginning of the documentary, it's like a super cut um, put together of like all these news edits of these reporters saying like, 2013, hottest year on record. 2014, hottest year on record. It's like year after year, they keep saying, oh, hottest year on record. Yeah, and it's like, how many times do we have to hear this is the hottest year on record before we start to just admit this is a big deal. Like it shouldn't be the hottest year, year after year after year, because every year when they say it's the hottest year on record, they're like, hey, we reached this crazy new temperature that we shouldn't have gotten to. See you next year. And they give you the <laughs> same headline. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's insane. It's the Truman Show. It is the Truman Show. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to get into some real life like applications of climate change because they got into... Miami and what they were doing to 
stop climate change right now. So they had tried to elevate roads um, and essentially they're, they're combating f- uh, flooding in a bunch of different ways. So one is they're elevating their roads and then two is they are basically creating a pump system that takes water from floods and sends it back out to the ocean. Um, so yeah, I thought that was cool that they're just saying, hey, climate change is here. It's on your front doorstep. This is what we're doing to combat it. And it's going to be on your dollar. Like the, the taxpayers are paying for it. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that in the United States, we're kind of privileged that we don't see those really, really harsh impacts of climate change yet in the way that some areas do. Like we look at some smaller island nations that are going to be underwater in 20 years. But Miami in this documentary was kind of a insight or an insight to this is happening to us, like you said. And what they are doing is adapting to climate change. Um, We talk a lot on the show about mitigating climate change. And that term means to lessen the effect of climate change through action. Adaptation is what Miami's doing. And that's more dealing with the problems that have been caused. So an easy way to remember it is um, mitigation is like taking cold medicine. That way you stop sneezing. It fixes that root issue. Adaptation is sneezing into a handkerchief instead of just spreading it out into the air. Um, and I, I think that the pumps are a really effective way to adapt, like you mentioned, because, you know, it's funded by taxpayers of the city. So it's easy to pay for. There's a lot of people that live there, but it's also mean meaning that they don't need to have their cars removed from flood water. They don't need their homes to be you know, cleared out of their, like their basements all the time because all their stuff got destroyed by another flood. So it, it, sure, it's probably expensive, but it's a lot cheaper than the alternative of your car and your house just got ruined again. Yeah. It's, it's spend the money now. So you don't have to spend a boatload of money later, you know, like small short-term investment now is way better than okay, now I have to completely relocate with myself. Like now I have to move to whatever, Kentucky. I don't know. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle of the country that's dry. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're right. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's a scene where Ted Cruz lies about the earth, not warming over the last two decades. And then the former president confuses the climate for weather. And then we look at several radio or TV hosts who don't understand how to read charts before climate scientist Dr. Mann of Penn State points out a key consideration. You don't have to convince people that climate change is not real. You just have to promote enough misinformation that it makes enough people unsure. So what they do here really effectively in this documentary is they talk about the donations that senators and Congress members receive from fossil fuel interests. And I really think that's one of the most important things that this documentary does and does well. Like, show me who lines your pockets if you're so confident about your misinformation, because people can very easily cherry pick statistics to make things look different than they are for the right price. It sucks. It really sucks. But unfortunately, this happens daily. Yeah. And it's, it's, it was frustrating too, because as the movie went on, it was just like further revealing more and more companies that are like household names too, that are just like, like you said, lining the pockets 
of these lobbyists or whoever it is to go on these shows and basically just spread misinformation or just like basically play devil's advocate in the, in the back of people's heads. Yeah. And and I'll tell you what, the devil has enough advocates. We don't need more (laughs) (laughs) devil's avocado. Uh, And also, you know, something you pointed out about the, the companies, it's really important too, that we talk a lot about how individual impacts can make a difference. And they can. And I don't want you to think that you're not making an impact by taking whatever steps you are taking to be more sustainable in your own life, because everyone doing that together adds up. But it's really important to point out that 100 companies in the world, 100, are responsible for 71% of the world's carbon emissions. Jeez. So it's the system that needs changing. Like we need to revamp everything and get renewables more in the forefront and that's we're going to get into how we can do that later because the documentary kind of gets into it as well but you know keep doing what you're doing but also make sure you're holding those companies accountable yeah absolutely speaking of renewables um this one i just don't know how people can look at the scenes that the documentary shows in china where coal power plants are creating so much smog and then sit there and call wind turbines an eyesore like i would much rather Look at a turbine 10 times out of 10 compared to dark gray gas in the sky. And I think some people would be a lot more interested in renewable energy if we weren't so removed from where our energy comes from. We can flick a light switch and all of a sudden the lights in our house are on. And we don't really have to think about the coal or the gas that goes into that process. So when people are powering their homes with with natural gas, They're not thinking about those tar sands that this documentary shows. And, you know, if it's going to be an afterthought, I'd rather my afterthought be, oh, cool. My energy is coming from the solar panels on my roof. That's kind of (laughs) nice. Yeah, I think it's a moot point to say um, solar panels are eyesores or wind turbines are eyesores. First of all, I think wind turbines look awesome, especially when there's like a hundred of them. There's like um, there was a California wind farm that I can't remember what highway it was. But anyway, when you're on this highway, there's literally like wind farms all over the place. And it's just like, it looks sick. But um, yeah, it's not, it's not nice for, I'd rather have clean renewable energy over um, a dark, cloudy, polluting sky. Yeah. And not to, not to just like pin it all on China. I mean, every time we drive into Jersey from New York, you go over the George Washington bridge and then all of a sudden maybe 20 minutes down down I-95, there's a big factory that's just always producing gray smoke. It's like, it's not fun to drive through there. But when I see wind turbines or a big solar farm out in the field, I'm like, oh, cool. And I get that same, oh, cool reaction I get when I'm driving past rural America and say, oh, look, cows. They're awesome. <laughs> <laughs> also, you didn't see a cow unless you said, oh, cows. It's <laughs> just part of the territory of being in a car. Um, I thought another point that they make that's really important to bring up is the consumption rate of American citizens compared to citizens of other countries. I was shocked. They broke it down by comparing it to, you know, one American equals X citizens in other countries. And each one was a lot. The thing I agree with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio about here is that I don't see us changing our lifestyles because it's a lot to ask someone to, 
hey, everything you're doing, do it differently. But also like Leo, I'm very optimistic that renewables can fix this issue. I mean, it's it's a lot easier to say, hey, let's power more of our homes through the sun and through wind than it is to say, hey, don't run your dishwasher at night because you're wasting energy. Like People aren't going to do that. But we can make their energy cleaner. Yeah, you can't change someone's habits. Like people are not going to start like hand washing every single dish. It's just not realistic. You know, they're not going to like not do their laundry. It's, it's the same thing. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm not being a hypocrite here and saying, Hey, do this. I do everything. Perfect. You know what I did when I got home today? Cause it was 97 degrees. I put on my air conditioner. <laughs> I wish that my apartment building was sourced by renewable energy. It's not, but I didn't want to change my lifestyle because it was really hot and I worked outside all day today. So when I got home, I wanted to sit in the air conditioning for a bit. And I totally get why other people want to do that. So to say we should change that, that's a lot tougher than saying, hey, let's get more energy from the sun, from the wind and from hydropower. That way, you know, we're not contributing to the same causes that make me turn on my air conditioner more often throughout the year. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like the chicken before the egg thing. Yeah. It's like, if you fix, if you fix this, you won't have to deal with this. Yeah. And then next they, they get into, um, coral reefs and, and this was just so unsettling for me. Uh, Dr. Jeremy Jackson brings Leo to a dying reef, but just before we look at that one, we look at healthy reefs and what they should look like. And you see all the fish swimming in and out of them. And it's, it's beautiful. Like I've, I've never been snorkeling or scuba diving, but I would love to do that in a reef before they're gone. And when you look at where Leo goes with Dr. Jackson, it's like a barren wasteland out of a sci-fi movie, you know, underwater, but everything is dark and there's not much life and you don't see any colors and the contrast between what it should look like a few seconds earlier, it's just very somber. Yeah. It was not fun to look at at all. Um, and it almost looked like just wreckage. It didn't even look like it was a coral reef. It just looked like straight wreckage on the ocean floor almost. Um, and yeah, it was just not, not a good time to look at. It was tough. Yeah. Um, they, they do get into solutions a bit and, um, one that I wanted to bring up was changing your diet and the way that they break down the actual numbers related to land usage and greenhouse gases related to beef, I thought was really well done. Um, personally, I stopped eating beef when I was about 20 years old. Um, it was not a hard switch for me. I was never really a big steak guy. It just didn't really love it for whatever reason. Um, I'm not here to tell people what to do, but cutting some beef out of your diet is an effective way to lower your carbon footprint. Um, they explain how beef production requires 10 times the land use of chicken and 50 times the land use of crops like rice and potatoes. So again, not telling people don't eat beef ever do what you'd like. But if you are looking for a way to cut your carbon footprint and you eat, you know, two steaks a week, make it one. And that's a good way to lower it. And it's not, not all that tough. Yeah. And while you're at it, you're also lowering your risk for 
heart disease. So you might as well hit two birds with one stone. And it's probably not as hard as you think. Um, I also kind of started making the switch. I still eat it, but it's more of like an occasion thing. Like I'm, it's gotta be like a big occasion for me. I'm not going to like just have it willy nilly. Um, so yeah, chicken and fish have been more than enough for me. So yeah. And, and just to, you know, call, call myself out here. The only time I have eaten beef really in the last six years is when someone else orders it and they're like, Hey, do you want to bite? All right, I'll try it, but I'm not ordering it. I'm not buying it for my own home. If someone else orders it and it's, you know, the, the damage is done and my friend's like, Hey, you got to try this short rib. It's really good. I'm like, all right, I'll try it. But yeah, I just, I try to limit what I purchase. Um, that way it's not, I don't know if it's like a, a moral high ground thing, but you know, then it's not my fault, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a yeah. dumb little mental block, but for some reason I don't feel bad when my friends like try my beef taco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And did you catch the statistic that said, uh, by 2060 climate change will cost taxpayers an estimated 44 trillion us dollars. Yeah, dude. And, and honestly, the thing about it is like that just makes spending $1 trillion to modernize our infrastructure so we can have more renewable energy a lot less expensive. I mean, you brought this up earlier about, you know, paying a little bit so you don't have to pay a boatload later. I would much rather we come together and spend more on our infrastructure now. That way we're not paying off $44 trillion, you know, in 40, less than 40 years. And, and people always talk about when these sort of bills are proposed where it's like, hey, we're going to put this many billions of dollars into fighting climate change with green infrastructure. People are just like, I don't want to spend money on that. That's a waste of money. You know, it's a waste of money not doing that and then having to spend 44 times as much down the road. Yeah. And what it comes down to a lot of those people are probably people who figure I'm not going to be here in 2060. I don't care. And like, I understand that mindset, but it's like, it's okay. So you don't care about like your grandkids. You don't care about like their kids. I don't know. It's a very like simplistic way to look at something one dimensional. Yeah. It's, it's a bit selfish to think, you know, just cause you won't experience it doesn't mean you should care. I, I think that we kind of owe it to each other as a collective to care. And switching gears a bit, I thought the way that President Obama looked at the Paris Climate Agreement is a very good way to look at it in that it's not perfect, but it provides the framework that allows us to get to those levels required to prevent catastrophe. Um, my fear is that by taking that slow approach as better technology becomes available, like President Obama said, we won't move quickly enough. And, you know, new tech is always rolling out and it's giving us an opportunity to make changes and set higher goals. I think if you set the goals, the tech will get there as opposed to letting tech dictate what our goals should be. Yeah, I totally agree. And also, like, we have some of the best scientists already on this earth who've, like, given us their best answers to climate change. So why wait to try and solve it? You know, like, we, what, we can't wait for better technology. We have to act now. Yeah, agreed. I thought the, um, it's one of the next scenes where uh, Piers Sellers shows Leo the advanced climate models 
I thought that was a perfect summary of what we're worried about. And, and honestly, better than any model I've seen, probably because he was kind of walking us through it as we were looking at them instead of me just looking at a chart on my computer. Um, but I, I wish that scene could just be shown to everyone so that they get it because it was very, here's what's going on. That's it. Here's what we're worried about. That's it. And all of those skeptics who don't believe it, like it's hard to not believe something when you're shown data and models and stuff that really makes sense based on all of those scientists who are way smarter than you and me. And you know, most of the, the people who aren't studying this day in and day out. Yeah, exactly. At NASA headquarters, no less. Yeah. Um, and then the film closes on a hopeful note where we talks about, we don't know what will happen in the future, but we do know what we can do next. And it encourages people to be an advocate, make environmentally conscious purchases. Like Nick talked about with, with many companies having their pockets in, in oil and gas, like make purchases that are sustainable. And finally vote like the planet depends on it because it does. And then finally, the credits of the film, it says that the film's carbon footprint was offset by paying a voluntary carbon tax that supports efforts to protect critical rainforests. And I thought that was awesome, given the amount of travel that went into making this film happen. And, you know, critics are going to say, oh, well, Leo is flying this jet to go around and go to all these places. Yeah, you need to film at those places. So <laughs> I, I, I think offsetting all of that by protecting rainforests is a really good way to say, yeah, it sucks that we wasted a lot of gas flying from place to place, but we're going to offset that. And you can discover your own carbon impact and how you can offset that by visiting carbotax.org. That's carbon without the N, tax.org. Then, Nick, before we wrap things up, I have a couple questions for you. All right, go ahead. What was the most impactful scene for you? Um, okay, so I think it's got to be the scene where Leo is speaking to the United Nations. Um, it's just such a powerful scene. Like, he's, he's just giving it to them. He's just giving it right down their throats. Um, <laughs> but he says, um, I'm going to quote it. He says, no more talk, no more excuses, no more 10-year studies. This is the body that can do what is needed. All of you sitting in this very hall. The world is now watching. You will either be lauded by future generations or vilified by them. And I just Jeez. loved how brutally honest that was and just how true it really was. Yeah, and it's it's cool because I was when I was watching that scene, I got I got a chill down my spine. And even just hearing you read it there, same chill. It's just <laughs> what he says is so true. Um yeah, I agree. Uh, for, for me, though, I, I think the most impactful scene was Pierce Sellers when he was talking about how he was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer and that it spread um, and that, that he wouldn't be around much longer. Yet he was using the time that he had left to care about what's really important. Um, I, I looked it up on the film's website and, and Pierce Sellers ended up passing away on December 23rd, 2016. So the same year that this documentary came out. But I don't think it should take facing the end of your life to focus on caring for the planet as a whole. Yeah, absolutely not. And that's really sad. 
Um, he was fighting the good fight. And I think the, the quote he says, or uh, Leo says, lauded by future, future generations or vilified by them. I think that needs to serve as kind of a wake up call. Like, Hey, policymakers, if you don't do something, you'll just, you can either be forgotten or you can be remembered as someone who stood up and actually did something and like gave it enough yeah. to, you know, put things in place that mattered and made a difference. Yeah. All right. Next question for you. What was your key takeaway for the film? Um, so it seemed like most instances of climate change in the movie stemmed from the greed of big corporations who were just acting with a complete like lack of care for the environment. And that was super frustrating to watch. Um, but it also feels like it's going to take something completely catastrophic for anything to actually be done because yeah, as a country, we've always just been reactionary and not actually proactive to everything. Like if something's in the news, well then, okay, now all of our focus is on it. And then like right when it's out of the news cycle, it's like, Oh, forget it. doesn't matter. You know? Um, so if there's still people out there that are misinforming the public about climate change, they have to really only be doing it for their own selfish interests. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're right. And, and that's, brings up something that they talked about earlier in the film, um, where they talk, talk about support for same sex marriage and, you know, president Obama didn't support that when he ran for office in 2008. And then the polls started switching and people started to get on board with, Hey, it shouldn't matter who you love. You have a right to be happy no matter who you are or who you love. And as more people started to support that all of a sudden, President Obama and the Obama administration started to push for that at the government level. So this is no different. Like we can push for environmental activism to, to be in serious policy negotiations. We just have to get out there and, and, you know, when pollsters call you, it's annoying, but answer and tell them what's important. I always answer them and I always tell them that climate change is the biggest issue that I vote on. So make your voice known. Uh, and that's, you know, like you say, I, I don't know what it's going to take for some corporations and, and some people to care, but there's a lot of us out there who do care so we can get it done, even if they're not on board. Yeah. And for me, I think my main takeaway is that we are facing the greatest threat of our lifetime, but it's also not too late if we as a society get off our ass and fight like hell to protect the planet. There are so many solutions available. We just need to put our support in them instead of being comfortable keeping things the way that they are. Yeah. It's going to take some uncomfortability, uh, in order to really get anything going, you know, like we have to get creative and uncomfortable. That's going to be the, the biggest thing. Agreed. And last question for you on a scale of wouldn't recommend to, I loved it. What would you rate before the flood? <laughs> I love the scale and I'm going to say <laughs> I loved it um, because it was just, it was interesting and informative while also like being gripping and factual and um, just generally like a great look into what this country is facing and what our entire generation 
can be responsible for fixing. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I, I also love this doc. I, I thought, like you said, it's it's very informative. I think it's entertaining too. Like the way you said, it's gripping. Um, most documentaries present information very well, but some of them, it's very cut and dry. Here are some things you should know. And with this one, I felt like, you know, it was very easy to understand everything because they just did it so well and covered everything so clearly without being overly scientific. So yeah, I love this. I thought it was really good. Yeah. And it had like, elements of like the theater kind of like you knew I saw more Martin Scorsese's name at the end I was like oh of course because like <laughs> it just had some elements of like real movie making and not so much like classic like documentary format style stuff so yeah and there's still a lot that we didn't cover in this film and the documentary is only about an hour and a half long so definitely check it out if you listen to this episode without watching it um, and for more information about the film you can go to beforetheflood.com and before we close out our discussion of Before the Flood, I wanted to talk about two things that our listeners brought up to us. So the first came from Kristen Pruitt, and she mentioned Elon Musk being included in the documentary and how, you know, a lot of us think of Tesla as this really solid, environmentally conscious company that creates electric vehicles and reduces our need for gasoline, which is all true. But on the other hand, she talked to a friend of hers about how Tesla has these really destructive um, mining operations that go for nickel and lithium, which are both valuable resources that are finite. And Tesla has been known to mine in the Arctic and indigenous community groups have been harmed so much so that they wrote an open letter to Elon Musk, basically just asking him to source those materials from more ecological and socially just mining companies. And he just ignored them. And for every gigafactory, you know, it's reducing that need for fossil fuels, but it's not perfect. And it's important to call that out. So, she also brought up how in one of the proposed lithium mines, there's a rare flower that might go extinct. And in another one, Tesla is basically destroying a tribe's sacred site. So again, it's not perfect. And it's important to acknowledge that when talking about the good that a company can do, it's not like it's only doing good. Another listener, Virginia Croft reached out and she said that the main thing that stuck with her is how this whole problem could kind of be stopped by much older people who won't be affected by climate change, which is something that you alluded to while we were talking about the documentary. And I think Virginia's next point goes really well with what we were talking about at the start of the show with the TED Talk about eco-anxiety. She said that it is completely unfair and there are too many greedy people in power. My 11-year-old niece was telling me about how much water and power is used where she lives in Arizona. My other niece was telling me that the Colorado River is going to dry up in two years. I can see them already having anxiety, and it's hard to even know what to say. And, you know, I I hope that the TED Talk that we talked about at the beginning maybe provides some clarity as to, yeah, we get it. It's really anxiety-inducing, and it's a tough situation to talk about. But there's a lot of hope that we should still have. Yeah, like we talked about before, we just need to be a little bit more positive about the subject and... Hopefully that will solve a lot of things in itself. So, And that is it for today's episode. 
Next week, our feature discussion is something I'm very excited about. Um, it's going to be about how we can build our homes and cities for a sustainable future. I'm actually attending a seminar hosted by the New York Times, and I'll be talking to you all about what I learned there. Um, I hope you're as excited as I am for it. They have um, an opportunity for people who are attending to ask questions. So I submitted one. Let's hope they answer it. Um, until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at Planet Today Pod, or you can email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We'd also really appreciate if you could share the show with a friend or two or however many you would like. Um, just tell someone who you think would like the show or share our posts on our social media pages. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, you can send them to us either by direct message or email. Uh, if you see a story you want us to cover, you can send that too. If you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we can try to make that happen. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I know we give this spiel every single week, but it's really important if you haven't already to help us out. Um, it's going to help the show grow. And even if you listen on Google or Spotify or another streaming service, Apple reviews and ratings really help the most. If you don't feel like the show is worth five stars, you can let us know that too. And I promise we can take it. Just give us a five-star rating before your comment saying, I wish this show did this better because the five-star ratings help more than the four-star ratings. <laughs> um, the Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norton. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. We are produced and co-hosted by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single episode of this show. Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? Yeah, I am on Instagram at Kid. I just posted a sweet picture of this pizza I made. Um, and then I also am on SoundCloud. That's where all my music is. And that is soundcloud.com slash Cape, And that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. All right. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend. Happy 4th of July to our listeners from the United States. And we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.